here's to courageous pioneers who understand a legacy is multifaceted. Whether you are an independent entrepreneur or someone who is part of a family business, you too can leave something of value behind for a greater purpose. Perhaps your legacy will improve workplace cultures, seize authentic moments, or inspire others with your talent. Your host, Angelina Carlton, is the founder of Design Your Legacy, a boutique advisory firm based in Beverly Hills, California. She is a mentor and coach to leaders like you and has contributed to Alliance, a philanthropy magazine, as well as to women in family business. She has been recognized by Los Angeles Biz as an LA woman of influence, as well as by World HRD Congress for her work. Remember, you deserve great coaching because your legacy is worth completing. Good morning. I'm Angelina Carlton, the hostess of the Design Your Legacy podcast, where I look to distill the best practices, positive examples in action, and the best ideas to inspire you. As today's affluent are two-thirds self-made, I hope to invite a variety of guests from many walks of life and income levels to bring you their insights and experiences. These guests range from family office professionals, Hollywood directors, as well as those in Generation Z, as they each contribute their thought leadership to the subject of legacy. I hope to provide interesting guests who challenge your beliefs with their strong bias towards optimism in how you too can value your life, time, and personal legacy. This morning, I have the honor of introducing Clint Arthur. He has shared the stage with Martha Stewart, Dr. Oz, Suzanne Summers, Caitlyn Jenner, Ice-T, and five presidents of the United States at Harvard, Cambridge, Oxford, the London Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, Mercedes, Porsche, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, AT&T, and the Royal Society of Medicine. His 21st best-selling book, Wisdom of the Men, is nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. He spends his time between homes in New York City, Los Angeles, and Acapulco, Mexico, where he lives with his wife of 20 years, Allie, and Nova, their billion peso puppy. Welcome, Mr. Arthur. Thank you. Great to be with you. So um, let's start with your book. Is that a good place to start or where would you like to begin? I would love to begin with Wisdom of the Men. I'm so passionate about this book. It's, it's a book. Normally, I would write books very quickly. But this book took me seven years to get ready to write it. And it, I knew it was always going to be my big book. I always knew it was going to be my big book because there's so much heart and soul into it. I put my whole life into it, my whole heart and soul into it. And I tried to put all the smartest stuff that I've learned from all the most incredible people in the world that I've met in my life. And I've been very blessed to meet a lot of really incredible people. And one of the things I shared with you before we started our conversation today is that I really appreciated how you went back and you looked at some of the life lessons through each phase of your life. So since this is a legacy podcast, what were or are some of the best decisions you've made in the last four or five decades when it comes to what I call, um, you know, defining, developing, executing your legacy, whether you were aware of it at that time or not? Meeting the people is definitely one of the things that has brought so much richness to my life and my legacy, starting with when I was a little kid and I used to go to nightclubs. You, you know, when I was growing up in New York City, the drinking age was 18. So I started going to Studio 54, the famous nightclub, when I was 15 years old. 
And that's where I met Andy Warhol one night and and also Halston, the designer. And this was just the beginning of putting myself into situations where I was out of my comfort zone. Like when when your girlfriend says, hey, let's go to Studio 54. That's not exactly a comfortable thing when when you're 15 years old. There's a lot of things about it that made me feel uncomfortable. When we got there, there was probably a thousand people mobbing the street trying to get in. We had to go through all of those throngs of people to get to the front. And then when we got inside, everyone was so much older than me and all dressed up in fancy sparkling clothing. It, and then when I started going to that, but as you do stuff, it changes you. Yes. So it sounds like one of the lessons is that you started to trust yourself more in your abilities and to know how to handle brand new situations outside your comfort zone. Well, when I was on the Today Show, Brooke Shields said, you talk a lot about being comfortable outside of your comfort zone. And I said, life begins where your comfort zone ends. And she said, that sounds scary. And I said, when it's scary is when it's great. And really the lesson is, and I remember this very clearly because I was never comfortable. I would walk up to school. I would walk from my apartment in Midtown Manhattan to my high school, which was Stuyvesant High School on 15th Street and First Avenue in the old building before it moved. And I remember walking up to the school and feeling sweat on my upper lip and on my brow because I was always nervous and uncomfortable because I'm an introvert. But I have always, despite my introversion, I have always put myself into situations where I had to be brave. I, I had to just hide and put myself out there because I've always known that if I'm going to get anywhere in the, in this world, it's up to me. And that's why I've, I've done the stuff that I've done. And as you do more stuff in this case, going to studio 54 with my girlfriend enabled me to go to studio 54 by myself. Because what I realized was that, hey, as a young, good-looking kid, boy in New York City in the early 80s, I could, I had my own value. I could do anything that I really wanted to do because I was a young, good-looking boy. And they were happy to have me in the VIP rooms and in, in the private offices of these nightclubs because that's what they wanted. And even though it, it started out as being very uncomfortable, I got some great things by participating in that stuff and getting out of my comfort zone. And that going out of my comfort zone has, has been a recurring theme that's served me really well. And I help all of my clients to do the same kind of thing. I help my clients to get way outside of their comfort zones. Wonderful. And it also sounds like your ability to learn from every situation has been um, an asset in your developing your legacy. One of my mentors is Tony Robbins. Do you know who Tony Robbins is? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I talked about how when you start doing things, it's uncomfortable, but the more you do it, the more comfortable it gets. Uh, about five years ago, I got an email and it said, if I donated $25,000 to that I could be a VIP at their concert and meet the band and talk to them and get a photo with them. And I showed it to my wife. I said, what do you think of this? And she said, wow, that seems really cool. 
but $25,000, that's crazy. And I said, yeah, you're right. The next day I got another email and it shows you the power of repeat emails, even though I'm anti-email. And the next day on a whim, I bought that $25,000 donation package and I showed it to my wife. I said, guess what? We're going to see Mick Jagger. And she goes, you did not buy that $25,000 thing. I said, yes, I did. And we went and we had an amazing time. Fast forward to two years ago and I got mail from Tony Robbins team. And it said, if you donate $25,000 to Tony Robbins favorite charity, then you can be the host of his 60th birthday party in Los Angeles at the Microsoft theater. And it took, me because I was already more comfortable about doing stuff because I had done it once before. And this is the whole thing about getting outside of your comfort zone and, and being courageous is that the more you do it, taking those risks, you get used to taking risks and, you know, it, it becomes less the experience with success. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. And that's what's, that's the whole thing. You know, so many people, they think, well, I could be a speaker at the, um, at the stock exchange. I could do that. Yeah, you could. And once you've done it, then we'll know how did you, how good you did. Yes. I've, I've spoken at NASDAQ many times. And the last time I spoke at NASDAQ was much better than the first time I spoke at NASDAQ. I spoke at Harvard many times. And the last time was better than the first. And all of that prepared me for my most recent high status speaking thing when I spoke at the London Stock Exchange and Nigel Farage was there. And I said, Nigel, what's the most important thing you ever learned? He said, well, considering how it took me 27 years to make Brexit happen, patience. I thought that was a valuable lesson. And I, I brought this up for two reasons. Number one, first of all, you think Tony Robbins is somebody. Most of the people watching this interview think that Tony Robbins is somebody. I can show you many, many videos on my phone about Tony Robbins. And I say, what do you think of Tony Robbins? And the person says, Tony who? Right, right. Because they don't know who Tony Robbins is because only the half a percent of people who are into personal development, going to self-help seminars, we know who Tony Robbins is because Tony Robbins has marketed to us and positioned himself as a celebrity in our eyes. But in reality, he's nobody. To the, to the general public, Tony Robbins is nobody. That's why I feel if Tony Robbins is nobody, I'm nobody. Even though you heard my impressive introduction and I'm sitting here listening to the introduction and it is quite impressive. I built that introduction for the yes. purposes of making myself sound impressive to clients and prospects. And you know what? That is called being a, a celebrity entrepreneur. That's exactly what Tony Robbins does to you and me. And that's exactly what I do to my clients and prospects. I position myself as a celebrity in their eyes. I'm, I've done a lot of stuff. I've gone a lot of places. I've accomplished a lot, but I'm still the same person as I was when I was going to Studio 54 in high school. Wonderful. And I think one of the takeaways from your book, as I mentioned before, is that anybody if they are perseverant and determined, can become a self-made success because you have to overcome hurdle after hurdle of uh, both naysayers or people canceling on you and so forth. So let me ask you, how do you define legacy now that you have reflected and um, was able to write this memoir of sorts? 
well, if you go to my website, ClintArthur.tv, you will see exactly how I define legacy. Your legacy is the sum total of the TV interviews that you do, the pictures of famous people that you take, the very important places that you speak, and the best-selling books you write and the awards you win. That's really what is going to remain. And I learned that by looking at one of my mentors. You've never heard of Arnold Copelson, have you? I did look him up. I did look him up on the internet. Because I wrote about him in my book. Arnold Copelson was the greatest celebrity entrepreneur of all time. He was the producer of a little movie in the 1980s, 1982. It was called Porky's. That was the fifth highest grossing movie of 1982. It was a teenage sex comedy. Then his next movie happened to be another one that you might have heard of called Platoon. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Then his next movie was Falling Down with Michael Douglas and then The Fugitive with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones and then The Devil's Advocate with Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves and then Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman and then a $100 million film for Warner Brothers called Eraser with Arnold Schwarzenegger. The man was the king of Hollywood. Nobody knows who he was except for the biggest movie stars in the world during his time in Hollywood, their agents and managers who were the top agents and managers in Hollywood, and the guys who ran the studios, the presidents and CEOs and board members of the studios. They knew who he was because they're the ones who hired him to produce their movies and paid him millions and millions of dollars, making him and a lot of people he worked with very, very rich but not famous. That's the difference between celebrity entrepreneurs and people like Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt. We're not famous. We're not celebrities. We're celebrity entrepreneurs. And I looked after he died in 2018, Arnold Copelson passed away. When I was flying out to California for the funeral, I started thinking about how I had been influenced by this man and how he had gone on TV and he had spoken at very important places. And I, I looked him up on Wikipedia. And I saw all the things that he did. And I related it to how I had accomplished many of those same types of things. And that is celebrity entrepreneurship. That is how you, that's how you execute a legacy. That's how you know what a legacy is. You look at a famous person and you see what do they write about that person? Those are the same things they're going to write about you. So you like how he designed his legacy. I like how he lived his life. I like how he positioned himself for high net worth success because of his positioning in the eyes of his clients and prospects. And that, that you know, I say that the marketing of who you are is 10,000 times more important than what you actually do or sell. Because what you do or sell is great, but if nobody knows what you do or sell, then you can't help anyone. So the marketing of what you do or sell is 100 times more important than actually what you do or sell. And then the marketing of who you are is 100 times more important than that because one of my other mentors is a very famous person in the direct response marketing area. Dan, His name Dan, is Dan Kennedy, Kennedy, right? Dan Kennedy says... I knew I had a problem. My wife broke her wrist. I knew I needed an operation on my wife's wrist. What I did not know was who was going to get paid a lot of money to do the operation. And that's 
So when you multiply 100 times times 100 times, you got a 10,000 times more important result of who you are over what you do. And that's why executing that celebrity entrepreneurship is so important. And that becomes your legacy. Wonderful. Thank you for providing insight on that. Because I think sometimes people don't understand um, how each individual has their own nuances around legacy and the um, what I might call the evidence that supports their view on it. So thank you. So you went to high school with Robert Downey Jr. And I think my dad actually went to high school with Harrison Ford, although Harrison Ford wasn't is not his real name. It's the stage name. So what did you learn from some of his movies? Because you definitely are a, a student of art as well as somebody who will learn from mentors. It's a fascinating way Robert Downey's life explains its own lesson. Because when I knew him in eighth grade, I was Tony in West Side Story, and he was the star of the musical Hair in another production that the high school did. Both of us being stars of the plays for the school, we became friends. We went to see a movie that his dad, Robert Downey Sr., had directed called Putney Swope. And I don't remember anything about that movie, but after the movie was over, we were walking through Greenwich Village and he said, hang on a second. And he ducked into a candy store and came out with a pack of Marlboro Reds. And he fishes out a, a cigarette, takes a puff, holds up the pack like this next to his head and crushes it and throws it on top of a pile of trash on the sidewalk. And I looked at him like this and he goes, I just wanted one. Now, this shows you how much personal willpower Robert Downey Jr. had. However, we all know Robert Downey Jr.'s willpower wasn't enough. He got in trouble with the law because of drugs. He got became a drug addict. He went to prison. When he got out of prison, he was lucky enough to be able to be employed by a woman named Susan Levine. Now, the fascinating thing is that my wife, before I met her, was running a production company in Hollywood. And Susan Levine worked for my wife in her company. And then she went on after working for my wife's company. She went on to become a movie producer. She hired Robert Downey Jr. And they got married. And his life and her life have been on what I call an extreme rocket ride of success. Yes, I was going to mention that's his wife because I looked on his Instagram profile. And the real lesson of Robert Downey Jr. goes beyond willpower because willpower is not enough. The real lesson of Robert Downey Jr. and what I found to be true, luckily for me, I have a great wife. Who you sleep with makes a huge difference. If you're sleeping with a person in the middle of the night, you say, hey, I just had this great idea. And they say, shut up, I'm sleeping, don't bother me. That's not the same as if you wake them up and you say, hey, I had this idea. I want to do this, this, and this. And that person says, that's an amazing idea. You have to do that. That's the kind of thing I generally hear from my wife. And I think that's the kind of thing that Robert Downey Jr. and his wife are sharing with each other. And the real lesson of Robert Downey Jr. is who you sleep with every single night is a huge determining factor in your success. Yeah. And I, I'd like to compliment your honesty right now, because one of the things that is in your book is just raw truth. And I wish that every 18 year old could get a copy of this book so that they could break through the illusions of what they're told in society and to realize that, you know, it's going to be a hard world, but these tiny distinctions do make a difference. I really 
tried to pull no punches with this book. Like I said, I was intimidated by it. And when I went to Venice, I, I held a conference at Carnegie Hall featuring Martha Stewart, Ice T, Jerry from Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, Rob, um, Michael Gerber, who wrote The E-Myth, and Dan Kennedy was supposed to be one of the speakers. He was the actual inspiration of it all. It was called The Living Legends of Entrepreneurial Marketing. And after that conference was such a huge smashing success, I took my wife on a celebratory tour of Europe, and one of our first stops was in Venice for two days. When I first arrived in Venice, the ingenuity, the genius, the creativity of that little archipelago of the city, all buildings rising up out of the water was so inspirational to me. I knew if I could spend enough time in Venice, I would do a great service to Wisdom of the Men. And I waited almost two years to be able to get back to Venice to write that book. And as I was there walking around by myself in this ancient glory of Venice, Italy. I was just me talking into my phone. I dictate my books and I was just talking my truth and I had nobody to be sensitive about. I pulled no punches whatsoever. I told everything exactly like it is. And some people get pissed off at me, especially about the chapter about Ed Asner. Remember that? Oh chapter? yeah, I do. He was not very nice to you. No, he wasn't. In his final words. Yeah. And I took that as some kind of a weird message from the universe. And I really had to think about it because I wasn't going to write about that because he was so mean to me. He was and nasty. I, he was nasty. He was to nasty. You. He yeah. was nasty, especially when I had so much esteem for him, as I explained in that chapter. And then I figured out what it was really all about. And a lot of people don't want to hear what that's all about. A lot of people don't want to think that that that's inside every single man, that that yeah. nastiness, that that meanness can be part of it, even your husband or boyfriend. But that's the reality of it all. Yeah, I, I kind of was thinking about that this morning and I thought he was just unhappy with himself. And then those final words that he said to you, yeah, they weren't very constructive. But I want to highlight something right now to any viewer or listener that's tuning in, which is no matter how many times people um, you know, put you down, threw you down, insulted you, um, you've always come back to a place of what can I learn from this? And like I said before, you know, you, you still have a good heart. It, it didn't taint you. It's a really important lesson. And it's one of the things that I've learned over the years from Tony Robbins, who has been a great mentor to me in his own way. And that is, you know, what can you find? What is the seed, the kernel of good that you can find from any situation? You always have to look for what's the lesson I can learn from this. Because, you know, I did a segment called Five Things You Should Never Say If You Want to Make More Money. And this was one of my TV appearances. I think this was my 96th TV appearance, and it was on Fox Los Angeles. And I say one of the things you should never say if you want to make more money is I woulda, coulda, shoulda. There, there's life. There's what happens in life. And sometimes you win. Sometimes it doesn't go the way you want and you can lose money. And sometimes you break even. But in any case, you should never say I would have, could have, should have. You, you, all you can say is this is what happened. And here's what I learned from having my $50,000 stolen by my Taiwanese partner. That's what I learned from that. Yeah. And I speak with authority about that because I had $50,000 stolen by my Taiwanese partner. And we were talking about it just this morning and what we learned from that whole thing. 
So in taking these punches time and again, what do you think keeps you um, humble as well as uh, with your work ethic? And the reason I'm highlighting that is because sometimes when people can become successful, they can rest on their laurels. I have had the great privilege of getting clean and sober. I, I quit smoking marijuana accidentally in 2009. Which you talked then- about. In this book. Yep. I talk about it in the book and I talk about how when I the day after I went on the Today Show, January 1st, 2014, I woke up in my hotel room and I said to my wife, you know what? I think I'm done drinking and I've been clean and sober for more than eight years now. And as a result of that, I have been able to really take my life on a rocket ride. That's when all of my events with the biggest celebrities started happening. I started having the courage to pay the big money to get the big celebrities to come. You don't get Dr. Oz and Martha Stewart and Caitlyn Jenner to show up without putting out a lot of money. And as a result of meeting, you know, you don't get to meet the Rolling Stones without paying a lot of money. And as a result of my work, working with the biggest superstars in the world, I have a really great perspective on how as as great as I am and all the things that I've done, I'm not Mick Jagger and I'm not Dr. Oz and I'm not even close to these people. I'm not even close to Tony Robbins and Tony Robbins is nobody. It's very easy for me to, well, not easy, but it's it's been very fortunate that I'm able to be self-aware. I, this is a thing called, I call situational awareness. I'm aware of my situation. I'm aware of who I am. I'm aware of what I've done. And I'm very grateful for the things that I've accomplished. I'm grateful for my beautiful home in Acapulco. But I understand also that I'm I'm really just a celebrity entrepreneur. Yes. So what I, I'm hearing is that when you gave up drugs and alcohol, which you talked about very authentically in your book, is that then you realized more than ever the potential within you to reach new heights, because then really you had nothing stopping you. When I gave up drugs and alcohol, both of those things had been contributing to my lack of confidence. By giving up drugs and alcohol, I became more confident and I was able to face adversity much more strongly than I otherwise would have been able to face it. When we were scheduled to do our Leadership Speakers Academy event at West Point Military Academy, I paid Buzz Aldrin, the man who walked on the moon right after Neil Armstrong, a lot of money to be one of my speakers. I had a U.S. Army three-star general, General Russell Honore, who evacuated New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. I paid him a lot of money to come and speak about leadership at that event. And 26 days before the event was supposed to start, the brass at West Point canceled the event and told me they would gladly refund all my money and that they knew, they they said, look, Clint, I know it's going to be hard for you, but you're not going to be doing any events at West Point. And somehow I was able to stay courageous and keep believing And I'm not exactly sure how I did it, but I still had my three-day event at West Point and everyone got what they were promised and more. And Buzz Aldrin spoke 
to my audience and everybody got pictures with Buzz Aldrin on the stage and the general spoke. And when I asked Buzz Aldrin, what's the most important thing he ever learned? He says, nothing is impossible. And when I asked General Honore, what was the most important thing he ever learned? He said, all the opportunities on the other side of impossible. And what I've really come to learn is that impossible is really just a barrier to entry that most people allow to enter into their mind. When you are told, no, that's impossible, you can either believe it or you can figure out how to create a workaround. And that's exactly what I've done time after time after time. And I'll tell you, we never thought that our event at West Point was going to be life changing. We thought it was just going to be another seminar, just like everything else we had done. And it would be just one more, you know, million dollar event that we were going to profit from. I had no idea that it was going to change my life forever because once we were able to go up against the U.S. Army and triumph and deliver everything we promised and more to our people, that gave me so much more courage. And that's the same thing about like donating $25,000 to the charity. When you do these things, certain things in life change you. And it's those experiences and personal growth and changes that really is the richness of life. Absolutely. And I love how fulfilled you are today. I'm blessed. I really am. I mean, we came to Acapulco wanting to take a vacation during the 15 days to slow the spread. Instead of quarantining on, in, on the 13th floor of my apartment building in New York, New York City, in my apartment or in my loft in Los Angeles, we turned it into a vacation. And four and a half months later, we left with an accepted offer on a villa and we were different people. We were completely different people and much better off. The, the quarantine and COVID was the best thing that ever happened to us. So you're happy today, and that is wonderful. So let's turn the clock back for a moment to the days of driving the yellow cab. So what mm. did you learn from that season of your life? Well, a lot of people ask me, do you resent chasing the Hollywood dream for 13 years and really having very little to show for it in terms, you know, I, I wrote 30 screenplays. I wrote 10 books. When I, when I wrote my 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 first book that I published with Penguin USA. Yep. Can I just interrupt for one second? Sure. Yep. Okay. I just want to, to provide a timeline quickly for any of the listeners, which is you had graduated from the Wharton Business School. You gave up an opportunity to work on Wall Street and you decided to pursue a Hollywood dream. And then you had driven a cab for 10 or 13 years, something. Okay, please go on. I just wanted to provide a bit of context. 1995, my book was the big book of the summer for Penguin USA. And that's when I started driving a cab yellow cab number 6087 in Los Angeles. I drove it for six years because I had already, I spent the first seven years of my Hollywood dream maxing out a whole big, huge stack of credit cards. And it, you know, if you're careful and know how to pay one off with the other, it can last a long time. And that's what happened with me. But then I had a daughter and the money got spent much faster and I ran out of credit. So I started driving a cab and people ask, I wrote 30 screenplays, 10 books. And people say, do you resent wasting so much of your life chasing a dream that never happened, especially in light of the fact that all my fraternity brothers from Wharton were becoming millionaires and some of them billionaires on Wall Street, managing hedge funds. One of my fraternity brothers is the owner of the most expensive private house in Hong Kong, 
the most expensive house in the most expensive real estate market in the world? And I say no, because what I learned from that process essentially was why they picked Brooke Shields to interview me on the Today Show when they could have hired a million different Columbia Journalism School graduates for free to interview me on the Today Show. They paid Brooke Shields a lot of money because of who she is. And they don't teach you this at Wharton Business School. They don't teach you this at Harvard Business School because when I spoke at events sponsored by the Entrepreneurship Students Club of Harvard Business School, I asked the president of the club, does anybody ever talk about what I talk about at Harvard? He's like, never. When I spoke at USC's business school, my daughter was a junior at USC. I asked the professor of the entrepreneurship class I spoke at, does anybody ever speak about this at USC? They, she said, never. Who you are is more important than what you do or sell. They picked Brooke Shields because she's Brooke Shields and they didn't pick all those journalism people because those people are nobodies. And that's why I say who the marketing of who you are is 10,000 times more important than what you actually do or sell. Yes. So in order to get there, you have to work through getting judged. And that is one of the things that slows people down. Oftentimes the pain of being judged by other people. So how did you get to overcome that? Cause that, that stops like 90% of the world. It's a, it's a terrible thing. It will stop you. And you it's have painful. To, well, you have to, you have to get up the courage to try to become somebody. That's really what it comes down to. And I was lucky enough to invest in mentors. And the mentor who early on got me to start realizing the importance of being somebody was Jack Canfield. He, see, my first, after, okay, after I was driving the cab for six years, I said, this isn't worth it. 30 screenplays, 10 books published by Penguin USA. Nobody's reading what I'm writing. I'm driving a cab. Being a writer is not the answer. I got to try to save my life, dig myself out of the ditch that I had dug for my life. And I said, I'm never going to write again. And then it was October of 2008. I, from 2001 to 2008, I didn't write anything. October of 2008, I was at a men's self-help campfire and the shaman points at me across the yellow and orange crackling flames. You don't know it yet, but you're already dead. What are you talking about, man? I was the most, I'm the most successful guy on this team. I was driving a cab eight years ago. Now I'm a millionaire. I was living on a little boat, Marine Del Rey. Now I live in a mansion in the Hollywood Hills. You're already dead. You just don't know it. And I didn't know what he was talking about, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I woke up on New Year's Day of 2009. It haunted your soul. <laughs> it really did. I, I'd wake up in the middle of the night. I'm already dead. What does he mean? I didn't know what he meant. And I pulled out a pad and a pen to write down my list of goals for the year. Like I've been accustomed to doing once I became successful as a businessman, instead of trying to be a writer. And I asked myself a question inspired by the shaman. I said, you know, Maybe the guy is right. Maybe I am already dead. Or maybe I'm going to die at the end of this year. I don't know. What if this was going to be the last year of my life? What would I want to accomplish? And that was a really key thing because I was still smoking pot at that point. I was still drinking a lot. So I still had confidence and self-esteem issues. But by asking myself what I would want to accomplish if this was going to be the last year of my life, it broke me through a lot of the fear, doubt, and procrastination that had been holding me back. Yes. And the first thing I wrote down on the list of what I needed to do was write my book about what I learned at the Wharton Business School that helped me to become successful. 
successful was they stopped being a movie star. And I wrote that book very quickly, 18 days. And then I self-published it on Amazon and waited for all the sales to roll in. And first year, 18 sales rolled in of that book. And I was like, wow, how come no one's buying my book about Wharton Business School? It's, it doesn't make any sense. And luckily, uh, you know, I asked myself, there's a common thing that a lot of experts have. My book really isn't that good. I'm really not that good. This is what people think. Mm-hmm. I call this, who am I? This is the who am I syndrome. I'm the not imposter good enough. Syndrome. A lot of people call it imposter syndrome. I, I just call it like, who am I to think that I could have written a book? Now, luckily for me, I wrote a book about the Wharton Business School. And I put all the smartest things that I learned at Wharton into that book. And I was lucky because I asked myself, when I saw that book sitting on a shelf in my office collecting dusk, dust, I asked myself this question. If that book is not good enough, the book about the best business school in the world, then what's ever going to be good enough? And I believed it in enough that I started seeking mentors on how do you sell books? And that's how I ended up face-to-face with Jack Canfield. And he said, you got to become somebody. You can't be a nobody and expect to sell books. People don't buy books from people who aren't famous. You need to become famous. And that's when I hired a publicist and started investing in the promotion and marketing of my book. And you really do. You have to, I thought, but here's the thing. I thought I was investing in the promotion and marketing of the book, but what I was really investing in was the promotion and marketing of Clint Arthur. Yes, and your brand. As you, as you invest in yourself, you not only get other people more of you, also begin to think more of yourself. And that's really the key thing because where does the first sale have to occur? Right here. Internally. If it doesn't happen, if you're, yep, if you're not believing in yourself, if you don't think that you have the greatest product in the world and you haven't bought the product yourself, you're never going to be able to sell it to anybody else. You have to have the confidence. And as I did more and more TV, that's when I started building more and more confidence. And that's how it all happened. Yes. So speaking of confidence, you overcame quite a challenge one time with a Wall Street Journal reporter. Do you want to speak on that for a moment? Because I think in today's cancel culture, no matter someone's age, they can be quite sensitive to when they get attacked. So would you speak to that story for a moment? Because I thought that was a very good chapter in your book. Thank you. That was a very scary thing. And, and it was really great because there was a lot of, I had a lot of stress waiting because initially that article started out as a hit piece on me and yes. it evolved really into a more of a criti- criticism of the way certain of my clients misrepresent what we do. I tell all my clients, don't ever lie in your marketing, especially it's not worth it. Your the whole point of marketing is to put the truth out there. And if it is uh, a, what I call a golden balloon, people are going to, you, you paint a picture of a golden balloon, you know, and people will imagine whatever they're going to imagine onto there. And generally people will imagine better of you than you think of your own accomplishments. And what I did was in talking to this Wall Street Journal reporter, I used the stories from my life, many of which that I've already told you here today. And it helps to paint a sympathetic picture of who I am and what I'm all about. And I think I won over the Wall Street Journal reporter by telling the stories about being a taxi driver and telling the stories about being a little kid wanting to be somebody and wanting to go to the Wharton Business School. And as a result of that, the Wall Street Journal article really 
could have been a lot worse than it was. <laughs> but but even still, I'm I'm able to you know pull out of the Wall Street Journal article a quote that I have on the front page of my website, ClintArthur.tv. It says Clint Arthur is a charismatic marketing impresario who helps his clients stand out, and that's exactly what I do. That's exactly who I am. And if you don't lie about what you do, then you'll be great. Now, what am I talking about? I had arranged for an event for my clients at the Harvard Faculty Club. It was sponsored by the Entrepreneurship Students Club of Harvard Business School. The president of that club spoke at the event. But nonetheless, some of the financial advisors, and I, I really do have, unfortunately, a low regard for most financial advisors because they're just not upstanding enough, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of financial advisors who are fiduciaries. That's good. But then there's a lot of financial advisors who will sell you products that really are not necessarily in your own best interest, yeah. in the interest of the company or whatever. And I, I have a lot of clients who have rebelled against that model and become fiduciaries because they want to be on the side of the client, which I think is only fair. But in any case, some of those financial advisors Instead of saying, I spoke at the Harvard Faculty Club at an event sponsored by the Entrepreneurship Students Club of Harvard Business School, said, here I am speaking at Harvard Business School. And that's not what happened. And that's a misrepresentation. That's a misrepresentation of what it yeah. was. I didn't do it. They did it. I never do that. I never, yeah. ever have said I spoke at Harvard Business School. I always yeah. say exactly what I've said. So because I want to be truthful and I don't need to lie. What I did was fantastic enough on its own. Why lie? Yeah. So what I would like to highlight there is how truth can be a superpower. But I think you also just faced the tiger that moment so that you related. You talked from your heart and telling the truth. And I think the journalist probably related to you. You know, you touched their heart. I'm sure that they were someone at one time that wasn't just a Wall Street Journal reporter. And they understood, you know, what you had built because they, too, had built something. It comes down to what I call seven figure stories. There are certain stories in your life that are the stories you need to tell if you want to make mucho dinero as an author, a speaker, a coach, an advisor, a consultant of any kind, an expert. These are, if you, what I've learned is the clients that I have whose stories I know, I know the person. When I know your story, I know the person. I know you. When I don't know your story, you're just a name on a list or a number. And that's a terrible way to be a vendor of any product. If you are a vendor of a product, if you are a salesperson of a product or service, if your clients and prospects don't know your story, then they don't know you. And if you can get them to know your story, then you will have an advantage over your competition. And if you can get them to know the right stories, then they'll be loyal as heck forever. And they'll pay you lots and lots of money because they'll really trust you because trust is the key to making high dollar sales. Yes. And by, by selecting the correct stories from your life, those are the seven figure stories. And if you can stack two of those stories together, oh man, that's what I've, I've been essentially living off of my uh, campfire story with, with the shaman and also driving a taxi on New Year's Eve of the millennium and finding out about my 
biological father not being my biological father. These are the stories that I have to put into the book and I have to put into the interviews because, you know, they're what make you human. And when you're when people know your stories that show you as being human and vulnerable, then they trust you and they're willing to give you a lot of money. Yes. So before I ask you where people can buy your book, what values do you get to honor today as you develop and execute your legacy? Hard work. Dan Kennedy says rich people work hard. And I was never sure if that was a good idea to display to my clients and prospects that I'm a hard worker because I'm a celebrity in their eyes. But I asked Martha Stewart, do rich people work hard? She said, every rich person who was a self-made rich person that I've ever known has been an extremely hard worker. Then I asked Ice-T, Ice, do rich people work hard? He said, man, you'll be on the yacht party, partying on top of the boat. But the guy who owns the yacht, he'll be downstairs making business calls. Rich people work hard, and I've been an extremely hard worker. And by quitting drugs and alcohol, it's given me more time to work. It, it's essentially given me a whole nother 40-hour work week because I used to be drinking and smoking. And instead, now I can be working. So hard work is one of the values that I embody. I also embody believing in yourself. You know that who am I is going to come up. You're going to always think, who am I to think I can do that? Who am I to think I could do the other thing? And you just have to believe that you're going to make the best decisions that you can make in the moment and you're going to figure it out. And finally, I would say the value that nothing is impossible and come many of the challenges that you read about in Wisdom of the Men. It's only helped me to understand that really, truly nothing is impossible. Wonderful. Where can people buy your book? And then I'll close out this wonderful podcast conversation. Amazon.com. Type in Wisdom of the Men, Clint Arthur. Wonderful. So Clint, I just want to thank you again for being a straight shooter in your book, as well as in this interview. I know that you are willing to be generous regarding the lessons that you have learned in this life for those who are willing to hear it. And I think that this is a gift that you are bringing, not just in your own personal development that you embraced and faced what you needed to do, whether that's internal demons inside or just all of the obstacles that are outside of one when they're on their, this journey of, of making their life a legacy compared to just settling for a tragedy. So I just want to thank you so much. It was a, a pleasure to meet four or five years ago at the Family Office Club. It's a pleasure to connect again in 2022. And I thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Angelina. Okay. So to anyone who's listening, please like and subscribe. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation and we look forward to connecting again next week. Thank you so much for joining.